FedSquare proudly acknowledges that Federation Square is situated on the traditional lands of the Boonarung and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation and pays respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge Aboriginal people as Australia's first people and as the traditional owners and custodians of the land and water on which they relay. We recognise and value the ongoing contribution of Aboriginal people and communities to Victorian life and how this enriches us. We embrace the spirit of reconciliation, working towards the equality of outcomes and ensuring an equal voice. Hello, my name is Ben McCarthy and welcome to this week's episode of Anything But Square. And today I am very happy to be joined by Keenan Mundine, who who along with Carly Stanley are the co-founders of Deadly Connection. Good afternoon, Keenan. Hi, Benny. Good afternoon, man. I wanted to ask if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, before I start, I'll just do an acknowledgement and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that I'm on today here in Sydney. This is Gadigal land um, as part of the Aura Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Where to start, man? <laughs> so I am a proud Aboriginal man um, with ties to the Biripai Nation here in New South Wales, uh, which is on the mid-north coast, which is Taree, through my mum. I also have ties to, to the Waka Waka Nation in, in Queensland, which is um, the suburb of Sherberg, through my father. But I was fortunate enough to, to be born and raised here in Sydney and then raised on the block uh, in my early years. If people aren't familiar with the block, that's in the suburb of Redfern, and it's four streets, Lewis Street, Everly Street, Caroline Street and Vine Street and I am the youngest of three boys. Um, my community when I was born in the 80s uh, and growing up in the 90s was, was very challenging for um, families and, and children at that time in my community. There was a lot of unemployment, there was a lot of drugs and alcohol, there was a lot of violence um, and there was a very, very, very heavy police present from, from my most early, earliest memories. My mother and father had a unique relationship in my earlier years um, that I don't really remember, but before the age of eight, I lost both of my parents, uh, my mum first and then my father about 12 months after my mum and my family found it really challenging to be able to provide the right support for me and my two older siblings and they made the ultimate decision to to, uh, split us up and and everyone take a so family members take a child each and for me that that was um, really difficult leading into my teenage and adult years because of what I've already experienced with my parents and then being taken away from the only thing that connected me to my parents and then not having any support or, or counselling or any, um, you know, yeah, different types of supports or ways to understand, you know, that trauma, um, growing up in poverty, um, you know, not having access to things and, and just being left as a child to try and figure it all out, how it's, you know, find my place within my family, my community, connect with my culture, 
no, none of these things were sort of at the forefront of, of supporting me and my siblings and you know they impacted us uh, and still impact us today at about 14 I left school um, I think after year seven to seek out my siblings and, and to try and go through the stage of healing and, and, and grieving and you know doing the things that you know, families do when, when going through such tragic events in their young life. Um, I found my brother back at Redfern who was heavily, heavily involved with the criminal justice system and experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And the vision that I had in my head um, of what my family would be like if I got to them was so far from reality. So I wasn't really prepared to, to, to see my brother in such a vulnerable state. And, and he couldn't give me the right support that I needed and, and that I thought I would get from him because he was dealing with his trauma and I was left to my own devices. Man, in about 2001, to take care of myself, um, I was homeless. I had no parental responsibility. I had no understanding of, of you know my place, my place in this world, what I've been through, how it's going to affect me you know, as I grow, as I, as I become a father and a, and a husband myself. Um, and I started taking care of myself and the skills that the people around me at that time taught, taught me to take care of myself, bring me in contact with the criminal justice system. And at the age of 14, I entered uh, youth detention and it took me nearly half of my life to be able to get away from the criminal justice system um, and, and recover and heal from my trauma and to overcome poverty and marginalization. And it's been a unique experience and very challenging journey, but that's what brought us to, to, to collaborating with my wife and building um, a specialist, culturally responsive service to support uh, you know, other, other First Nations people that are facing similar challenges to myself. Can you talk about what deadly what deadly connections is? Deadly connections, uh, community and justice services is a community response to the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the child protection and justice system, and we have uh, identified four key models or interventions to be able to offer our community and they range from different stages of an individual's life to be able to put interventions when you're a mum and dad and you're expecting a child to intervene as that child is a child and transitioning into a, a young teenager um, and then we have another program to work with at-risk teenagers and youths and then we also have um, our last program uh, which is open from uh, 10 up to about 55 which is breaking the cycle so for those that are at risk of uh, coming involved with the criminal justice system those that are currently involved with the current uh, justice system and those that are trying to build a life and and, and exit the criminal justice system I'd say one of obviously the things that I noticed researching Deadly Connections is actually how it is built on your own personal and professional experiences as Aboriginal people and community members. And I wanted to ask, what does it mean to, to provide a lifetime of lived experiences? Man, you might make me cry, but it's, it's, it's very... Um... It's very humbling and, and it's very fortunate that, that you know, I get the privilege of, of supporting people in their most, most difficult times and being a part of their healing and their journey. 
for me to be able to be in a position after two years to offer services to my community um, is one that inspires me to, to, to push harder, to, um, you know, to share more, to be open and honest about my experience and how they continually um, affect me today and how, how I see ways to support people in these most difficult times to overcome them and give them the skills to come out the other end and to be able to have new skills in, the, in their tool belt to be able to tackle life and life's challenges, man. How important is it for the Deadly Connection program to be grounded in culture and empowering communities? Man, it's the the sort of number one practice and, and theory of what we're doing to embed um, culture in the way in which we deliver services. Um, for, for most people that are at risk or have very traumatic experiences, the things that keep them safe and research, you know, backs it up is, is them being uh, connected and grounded in their culture and spirituality. You know, that doesn't mean they're religious. That just means that, that you know, they know who they are. They know their identity. They know where they come from. They know how the, they know where they fit in in their family. They know where they fit in their home. They know where they fit in their community. And and when we can keep them centered through the way um, we deliver our service, we can then start to tackle the sort of external um, factors that that keep these people uh, in challenging situations. We can deal with homelessness. We can deal with employment. We can deal with mental health. You know, social problems like that. Um, we're, 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 we're able to keep them connected and, and, and keep them protected through their culture to, to let them know who they are because, you know, without, I don't know how to explain it, but without them being centred uh, around, you know, their identity and their culture, the rest just falls apart. So, so what, what we know um, in terms of the resilience, strength, courage of our people is when you keep them on that uh, path of growing and learning about their culture and their people, they then become more empowered and confident in their ability to overcome hard times. And then that's where we can then teach them the, the practical real life skills of, of overcoming, um, you know, uh, poverty and, and marginalization and ways to, to get out of the poverty trap. And that's being on welfare and, and, and dependent on social housing. What your organization does really well is that it actually focuses on creating positive change, as you were saying, like, I think the notion of very much empowering the local Aboriginal community and and the and the community in general, in order to create the positive change within the community, what needs to be improved? Do you think the sector needs to be improved also? So so we have um we have an approach that we also take where we try to develop and and strengthen non Indigenous service providers to be able to practice. Um, self-determination when working with Aboriginal communities and families because at the moment you know we have really really significant and long-standing um, organizations and charities that provide work and interventions in these fields but they're not really uh, getting them to overcome intergenerational poverty it's just crisis driven you know my rent's due I'm going to be evicted that's not really empowering people to overcome and make better choices and understand that they are the agents of change 
we're just here on the journey with them and whatever that change is uh, is what they identify and what they look like the other sort of bigger thing is finances and resources you know where we have um these great visions and, and and proven ability to be able to intervene in such critical moments to support you know vulnerable uh mob and 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 communities but we're very under-resourced uh, once again you know these resources go to these super ngos and these super charities and 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 they exclude uh new innovative ones like Deadly Connections because even to get funding application off local government or federal government, you need to have at least three to five years of annual reports. It leads back to the statement that I always love to share that this system is not broken, it is very well designed. Do you actually think that this is something the government needs to pay more attention to, that they are the ones that actually need to improve and actually create that positive change? Government needs to needs to understand, um, like any suburb, town, ethnic group, that all of our communities operate differently. So what works in one postcode might not work in the other. You know, so most of most of the conversations around coming up with appropriate interventions for for, for our communities, they want a national rollout, which you know, is very difficult to try and capture and, and, and do it right. And most of the frameworks in the social work industry only operate uh, interventions for 12 weeks. So it's around also, um, you know, the practice of decolonizing social work and, and, and the criminal justice sector to understand how deeply embedded in culture we are, how deeply embedded in our families and communities we are, and how they pay the biggest factor in keeping us protected and safe. We need governments to stop building prisons, stop funding programs that aren't overcoming obstacles and challenges, um, and having a look at ways to, to, to improve opportunities for, for people once they do come involved in the criminal justice system. Because here we can charge a young person as young as 10, give them a record, that record stays with them when they're 15, when they're 25, when they're 30, when they're 40, when they're 55, but there is no pathway to accommodation and employment once you've been inducted into the criminal justice system. So once you're in, you're in and that's it. There are no pathways from prison to employment, from prison to education, or from prison to accommodation. So it's, a, it's around how do we do things differently? And if we do these things differently and redirect some of these resources and finances, um, we can build safer, stronger, and more connected communities, which then uh, will alleviate some of taxpayers' money to actually fix some roads and potholes in roads, rather than building prisons. What has actually been your favorite kind of like biggest win or your kind of like moment that very much like feels like that basically fills you up, that makes you feel like incredibly elated to be like, yes, we we actually did this. You know, we we as an organization, we as a community did this together. It's difficult. There, uh, there, are, there There's one most prominent standout moment uh, last year, we were involved in a crowdfunding opportunity sort of platform where you've got a pitch, uh, which is um, 
TFN is the acronym. It's called the Funding Network here in, in New South Wales. Uh, we were nominated alongside two other charities to pitch for some funding. And part of that process was we actually won our first bit of money to operate a program. So we won $80,000 to start our Deadly Families Project, which works with mums and dads and child protection issues and risk factors. So we get to lower their risk factors. So um, docs or Department of Communities and Justice can leave these families alone or, or we look at restoring children after they've been removed and what process the family would need to undertake in that sort of field. The, 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 the significant moment for me was we got a significant amount of funds, $80,000, but the most significant part of it was the two other agencies that was that got to grace the stage with us on that night were operating for about 10 years and we were operating for 12 months. So to, yeah, to, to go through that process and, and be validated that this is not just an idea that I share and my wife shares, that you know the wider community and, and non-Indigenous people believe that these are the way we're going to lower the statistics and, and close the gap. She'd be very, very, very like proud of that like um, achievement, especially after operating for like 12 months. That's, that's absolutely staggering. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a, a weird conversation when they asked us how long we've been operating for. So the other two participants and we're like, well, how long have you been going for? And they're like, yeah, we've been going for 10 years. And we're like, oh, uh, uh, I don't know how you're going to take this, but <laughs> we're fairly new in the sector. <laughs> it was in June 2018, you addressed the United Nations huge. Human Rights Council in Switzerland. Can you actually tell us a little bit about that experience? Man, it was like a supersonic experience. It was very fast and it was very quick. I didn't get to do a lot of touristy things while I was over there. I was only there over there for a short amount of time and, and it was um, putting my game face on as soon as I jumped off the plane. Nobody told me it was the middle of summer in Switzerland. So I got off the train, uh, off the plane in a hoodies and jumper and it was 40 degrees. <laughs> um, and it, and the sun didn't set until 10.45 at night. So I was, my body clock was out of whack. Um, but I didn't really get to process it because from nine o'clock to five o'clock, I was at, at the UN doing meet and greets and talking to other dignitaries, trying to tell them about who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. It wasn't until coming home, yeah, I was lost for words. I started um, reminiscing and, and, and reliving my, my childhood and some of the difficult situations I've been in and, and be overwhelmed with emotions to think, you know, that poor little boy just got to go um, to a place that not many people get invited to, you know, not many people have the privilege of, of sharing their personal life in, in such a moment. Um, you know, a, a lot of people that are there, they're, they're, they're paid to be there and they're paid to do a role. Um, so the, the, the experience was a bit more unique for me. But I did have a cry on the plane because that little boy was so proud of himself and I was wondering if my mum and dad was alive, how they would feel. Yeah, so that's that. That's when I was able to process it and go. That that is a really big achievement. Um, 
not bigger than having children and getting married, but it's one of my top five experiences. Uh, it was actually the first time I left my country by myself. Yeah, so I was in the plane. <laughs> Nobody told me it was a two-leg um, plane journey, and I think we got over to the tip of um, Sri Lanka, and I nearly had a panic attack on the plane because I was up in the air for about 20 hours. What does the future hold for Deadly Connections? I think if the past 200 years is anything to go by in terms of our country being colonized and and then being imposed uh, law and order on us that was foreign to us, that we're still trying to adjust to, that we're still trying to heal from, you know, some of the bigger events that, that, that shape our nation for Indigenous people, that, you know, the future is going to be challenging, but the future is also bright and hopeful, man. Um, I am so overwhelmed and excited. Um, like a little kid, every night I go to sleep, it's Christmas because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring when I go into work. <laughs> but the future, you know, for, for Deadly Connections, the ultimate goal, man, is to be redundant and not to need my service anymore, to be able to empower, you know, my community and, and those individuals in my, in, in, in my community and communities around Australia to get them to a space where they know how to advocate for themselves. They know how to follow bureaucratic processes. They don't get overwhelmed by them. They get to understand um, how to, to, to navigate um, all of the different aspects when trying to, to leave poverty behind, man. And that's dealing, you know, with people that you don't want to deal with. You can't run from them all the time. You have to confront them and, you know, sit down and, and have the skills to sort out your differences. Um, you know, and it's okay to have difference of opinions. I think also if the last two years of Deadly Connections uh, is anything to go by, the next two years is going to be, yeah, another roller coaster ride. <laughs> I really admire your way of thinking around, obviously, of your end goal means that daily connections are not needed anymore. I find that to be just a really, really incredible way of, of actually thinking. How can the public get involved? There's multiple ways, man. You can reach out to us on social media. Uh, we have our own Instagram, our own Facebook, our own Twitter accounts. Uh, we also have our website that you can fill in an inquiry from. Um, but but there, there, there are also, uh, you know, personal ways that, that individuals can get on board and that's challenging stereotypes and negative stereotypes about First Nations issues and challenges. It's, um, you know, empowering First Nations voices to be at the forefront of, of conversations and matters that directly impact them. And there's also I, I, the other tone, the other message that I like to say is, you know, don't do don't do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know, the the, the true the true core of self determination is identifying their strength and, and, and what they're good at, and giving them skills to improve on those things and identify not their weaknesses but their their areas of growth, man. Um, that's that that for me is how I overcame, you know, my challenges and my situation, and and I was able to 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 be able to do the work I'm doing. But, you know, on a more personal note, you know, the ultimate goal for, for a kid who grows up poor in a poor community is to have a family of their own and move out of that community so their children don't have to have similar experiences.
So that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, I'm living it every day. And if I can't show that and be that beacon of hope for my people that are entrenched and feel trapped, um, I've got to step my game up and do harder work. But but I feel like, you know, people are, are responding and, and, and people are hearing my, my struggle and what I've overcome and, you know, how I've overcome it. And they're very inspired in supporting me and, and supporting others on that journey. I really have to say, for me, it's actually been a real honor and a privilege talking to you, um, Keenan. And thank you so much for being a part of the Anything But Square podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday, and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care. And we'll see you next Wednesday.